You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Fundamentally, the um, IT systems are moving to a zero-trust architecture. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben looks at content moderation in the EU. I've got the story of the White House limiting the DOD's offensive cyber operations. And later in the show, my conversation with Lauren Van Weser from Akamai, we're going to be talking about the implications of the Biden administration's executive order on cybersecurity. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. With over 8,000 threat hunters analyzing over 65 trillion signals daily, Microsoft works tirelessly with the federal government to keep our nation's data secure. This 30-year-plus partnership is driving mission innovation that is secure by design. Whether optimizing your existing defenses or tackling advanced threats with AI, Microsoft gives you the intelligence and the automation you need to defend at mission scale. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms slash fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fedcyber. All right, Ben, we've got some good stories to share this week. Why don't you start things off for us here? So mine comes from Ryan Brown over at CNBC, and it's entitled, EU Agrees on Landmark Law Aimed at Forcing Big Tech Firms to Tackle Illegal Content. Hmm. And this is about a new uh, digital regulation that was agreed to by officials in the European Union over this past weekend, hmm. and it would force our favorite tech giants, Google, Meta, Twitter, and others, to better police illegal content on their platforms uh, or else risk multi-billion dollar fines. It's hmm. something like 6% of their annual revenue, which is, you know, pretty significant. The, uh, Euro- the Europeans really like to come at things with percentage of revenue fines, don't they? I mean, yes, that's they baked sure into do. GDPR. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of interesting parallels with GDPR here that I'm going to talk about. Okay. I, I see this as sort of a um, the ugly cousin of GDPR. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I think it's going to be, it's going to, the, way it's going to carry out in the United States might be a little distinct than what we saw with uh, GDP, GDPR, but there are a lot of similarities. Okay. So first, what does this new uh, regulation do? This would limit uh, how digital giants target users with online advertisements. So the regulations would stop platforms from targeting users with algorithm using data based on things like gender, race, religion, immutable characteristics. You won't be able to target children uh, with targeted advertising. It would ban dark patterns, so any tactics designed to push people towards services and products Mm. um, that are not on the up and up are Mm going to be banned as part of this uh, regulation. And then, perhaps most controversially, tech companies are going to be required to institute procedures to take down illegal material, including things like hate speech, incitement to terrorism, and child sexual abuse. Hmm. Uh, I think that is going to be the most difficult thing for U.S. authorities and U.S. companies to grapple with. 
Hmm. What we saw with GDPR is the EU put in these regulations, and the tech companies decided, if we're going to have to go through hoops to comply with these regulations for our European user base, we might as well just institute these as general practices. So back Mm. in 2018, 2019, we all got emails saying our terms of service have changed uh, to comply with the GDPR. Right. Uh, I probably got hundreds of those emails. (laughs) I think it was easier for the tech companies to just say, let's comply with these regulations uh, and not have two separate regulatory regimes in the United States and in the European Union. Right. When we're talking about things like censoring illegal material, things like hate speech and incitement to terrorism, I think our values in the United States and our legal system uh, makes it a little more difficult to apply that provision within the United States. Mm. I think we have more of a a culture that uh, that prizes the marketplace of ideas, controversial opinions, and categorizing certain things as hate speech might be more offensive to the U.S. user base than it would be to our European counterparts. Hmm. And so this might be something where if we were to just adopt these new digital service regulations in the United States, there might be an uproar that these terms are censoring too much, particularly political content. Hmm. And I think it's really interesting that this regulation was agreed to the same general period that Elon Musk purchased Twitter. Uh, Hmm, Okay. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm going to get there. I'm <laughs> well, drawing I'm gonna, the connection. I'm waiting for you to connect those dots. But <laughs> So his big objection to Twitter seemingly, and I frankly don't exactly understand why he's purchasing it and, and what his goals are. Right. Uh, but he's talked about wanting to foster a platform that is absolutist in its stance on free speech. Mm. Uh, and he is, I think, against excessive content moderation, particularly things like shadow banning people based on their political ideology. Okay. And I think that kind of goes against the spirit of what this Digital Services Act in the European Union would be doing to entities like Twitter, where they would actually be moderating more content. Hmm. Uh, So I think we're going to see this clash of values. Uh, This regulation, and I think particularly people on the left side of the political spectrum in the United States— think that there's too much hate speech, too much incitement to terrorism, that big social media platforms played a large role, for example, in the January 6th events, Mm. and that we need stricter content moderation to make these platforms more tolerable, to keep everybody safe. The other side of the ledger, uh, represented by people like Elon Musk, is that we need to have uh, reasonable content moderation that fosters the greatest exchange of ideas um, that fosters the greatest extent of of free speech as humanly possible. Uh, I'm not sure if the Elon Musk vision is achievable in practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, What's going to happen is if you don't do enough content moderation, your site is going to be overrun with bots and uh, neo-Nazis and other undesirable people. Right. I mean, mean, that's the way it's played out. We've, we've, We've been through this before, right? I mean, right. So is this a fool's errand to think is, – is it just rhetoric to say I'm coming in and I'm going to be the one who, who supports free speech? Because it seems like every time that happens, you know, folks come in and they say that and then the reality sets in and they're like, well, actually, you know what? This isn't going to be a viable 
commercial uh, entity if we just let everybody out here with their megaphones shout at each other. Right. So this is what I wonder about the whole Elon Musk thing. Yeah. Is he doing this because he thinks he can make Twitter profitable and he thinks that there would be a better business model and being more open to different types of speech, including some speech that would have been curtailed under the previous Twitter regime? Okay. Or is he doing this as some sort of ideological play where he's actually willing to lose money but believes so strongly in the idea of an unregulated platform or a platform where content moderation is extremely minimal and is limited to direct threats of violence, things like that. Hmm. Uh, and I think you know there are certain things that – certain actions he could take, one of them being letting President Trump back on Twitter and then a couple of the other – famous, notorious accounts that have been permanently uh, banned on Twitter, letting those back, it would be a signal that he's really doing this for ideological purposes, even if it would not be a viable business model. Mm -hmm. And unlike the other 7 billion people in the world, it might not be that big of a deal to him to lose billions of dollars if this is an ideological project that he cares about. Hmm. Uh, so I just thought, <laughs> in the meantime, ruins Twitter for the rest of us. <laughs> well, that's certainly my worry. I mean, although I suppose some people could say finally allows Twitter to realize its great potential, right? And that seems to be the view of even people like Jack Dorsey, who tweeted yesterday yeah. uh, as we're recording this. We're going to let Twitter flourish. Twitter is going to um, take off to the stars. It's going to be this free speech platform. We are absolutist in our position on free speech. I think what we see in this European Union law is the countervailing force is unfettered free speech leads to hate speech, incitements to violence, and various forms of deranged, psychotic, pornographic material. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I, I think we're starting kind of a it's not yet a hot war. It's more like a cold war of opposing sides on the content moderation divide between mm-hmm. the Elon Musks of the world who think that we're moderating content too much and entities like the European Union uh, who has really taken the lead in fighting big tech companies uh, in trying to prevent these services from being detrimental to society writ large. Uh, so I just thought that was a really interesting juxtaposition and that it – happened kind of around the same time. Yeah. I think another aspect of this that fascinates me just with the whole Elon Musk buying Twitter thing is just that we are at this place where we have this billionaire class who can buy things up this way. and As so, a vanity project. Right. And, and so you look at Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post yep. and you have Elon Musk buying Twitter. So you have this – you know, a small number of people who have a large amount of control over many of the primary ways in which information is distributed today. It's not like it used to be. You know, owning a newspaper is not, uh, you know, it, you can't compare owning a, a newspaper to owning Facebook or right, Twitter. Right. Or, you know, it's, just, it's a different, another, it's it's another uh, level of magnitude of, of uh, reach, I suppose, is a good way to say now, it. Now, in fairness, it's not like Twitter was a 
was a company, was like a co-op that you'd see in Park Slope in Brooklyn uh, owned by its users. I mean, it, it right. was a publicly traded company, right. but it still had a top-down structure, uh, structure, and some of the major investors were eccentric billionaires. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly somebody like Mark Zuckerberg controlling Facebook is another example of a billionaire with a lot of decision-making power. Mm-hmm. I think what some of the Elon Musk boosters are saying now that he's bought Twitter is, we're just transferring control from a billionaire class that doesn't believe in free speech to a billionaire class that does believe in free speech. So <laughs> the the constant is having an eccentric billionaire at the head of the company. <laughs> right. Now we have someone that's supportive of free speech. Uh-huh. The broader thing that I think you're bringing up is, is it good at all to have billionaires be in control of the main arteries of communication? Mm-hmm. Um, people Globally. Who have, Globally. Right. Yeah, people who might frankly have their own parochial interests, uh, and that's true at any side of the ideological spectrum. Whether right. it's Bezos at the Washington Post um, promoting his own business interests in Amazon and Whole Foods, or if it's Elon Musk and his ideology maybe making its way into some of the content moderation decisions he and his people are going to make at Twitter. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's particularly healthy. Uh, I don't know what the solution is. So the thought is maybe we do what Justice Thomas has argued in a recent Supreme Court dissent that we start to look at these entities like common carriers Mm -hmm. and we allow for increased federal regulation on these sort of content moderation practices. That itself is extremely problematic in a number of ways. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think (laughs) – That pesky First Amendment. I know. (laughs) Really, we're at a position where – I'm not sure this is exactly the right term, but these companies are too big to fail. Uh, Yeah. We need to make them as successful as possible. Too big to fail or or too big to be the playthings of individuals. Right. Too too big to be vanity projects of people who think that they have a brilliant idea of how to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess the question is, is this going to be like – Tesla, or is this going to be like one of those weird Hyperloop tunnel projects that's gone nowhere? <laughs> and I guess well, that remains to be seen. Well, these guys with, their, with their, their spaceships, right? Right. I mean, the, you know, they're van- let's go into low Earth orbit together. Yay, we. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I suppose, uh, look, wealthy people can spend their wealth on whatever they want. Apparently, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I guess it gives me pause when you when. When you see uh, public policy enable the this amount of accumulation of wealth, um, that mm, I, I have a problem with that. I have no problem with rich people, but when it gets to this point, I think perhaps we've got a public policy failure here. That's and that's my. I'll get off my soapbox now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I know that's not necessarily a popular opinion, but I I I, I submit it's bearing out that it can be problematic. Let me just state for the record to our new Twitter overlords, I don't agree with Dave Bittner. <laughs> Do not kick me off your your platform. I see. Okay. I love our eccentric billionaires. This is how geniuses. it's going to go. This is how it's going to play out, huh, Ben? So I think so. I mean, so you, Twitter's more important to you than me. I understand. I okay. I just I I know where I stand now. It's if you fine. happen to see me complimenting it's SpaceX, <laughs> it's fine on my Twitter yep. profile. Yep. Then you know you might have an idea of what I'm up to. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. 
All right, we'll have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, My story this week, this comes from the Wall Street Journal. It's actually an opinion piece uh, written by uh, Jacqueline Schneider. Uh, She is uh, a fellow at the Hoover Institution. Um, And this is, uh, it's titled, uh, The Biden White House's Cyber Warfare Power Grab. Um, And... It's interesting to me from a, a couple of perspectives. So first, let me unpack what what uh, the case that she's making here is that uh, back during the Obama administration, President Obama had a policy directive which kind of centralized the interagency review process for offensive cyber operations. Okay, so offensive cyber operations are when uh, our Department of Defense, our intelligence community. Uh, rather than being reactive, they are proactive and they go and do things in the cyber realm that they, uh, they are to our national defense or um, strategic interests and they go out and do them. Um, evidently, during the Obama, Obama administration, um, the systems that they put in place were by some accounts um, – took a lot of effort to get things through, right? Interagency uh, review processes. Bureaucratic squabbles. Yes, yeah. all of that kind of stuff. So when President Trump took the reins, um, evidently he streamlined this. Uh, and uh, he had uh, National Security Presidential Memorandum 13, which according to this uh, piece is classified, But public statements uh, say that it allowed the folks in the Department of Defense to conduct what they call time-sensitive offensive cyber operations by sidestepping this interagency approval process. So if if they needed to, they could go and do the things they needed to do without having to go through all of this rigmarole. Um, Now with uh, President Biden in office, evidently he is looking to roll back to – the way things were dur- during the Obama administration, slowing things down again. Um, I'm curious what your take on this is, Ben, because on, on the one hand, I have to wonder, you know, to what degree is this um, just sort of partisan stuff where Obama had one way of doing things, Trump came in and changed it, Biden's going to change it back to the way that Obama had it just because he can, <laughs> or uh, is there actually a legitimate policy reason that the Biden administration could see to slow this down? Could they perhaps think could, the things that they know that we don't know because a lot of the stuff is classified? Is it possible that they've looked at this and said, "Yeah, you know what? Uh, perhaps things were happening a little too fast." I think this is more of an ideological difference of views than a partisan one. Mm. I mean, I think generally Democratic administrations, and this isn't just uh, true as it relates to defense policy, wants more layers of interagency oversight over everything. Mm. Um, So there's going to be a more centralized bureaucratic review of federal – all federal regulations, uh, for example – in Republican administrations, particularly as it relates to the Department of Defense and military operations, you don't want all of these additional bureaucratic hurdles, and you want to give more authority to people to take action when necessary. I mean, this is kind of George W. Bush war on uh, war on terror mentality. Hmm. We don't want to hamstrung our uh, defense apparatus, our generals uh, who are on the ground to understand these operations. We don't want them to be hamstrung by a burdensome review process. Mm -hmm. 
I'm not sure that either side in this dispute uh, is necessarily right or wrong. I think it's just in a different approach, uh, approach to cyber operations. What this uh, author is saying, the author of this op-ed, is the Trump policy gives the Pentagon free reign to conduct whatever cyber operations it deems useful, and that's problematic. Hmm. But what she's saying is in the time that that regulation has been in place, there's not that much evidence that the U.S. is engaging in all kinds of offensive cyber operations. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not the case that the Defense Department is acting brashly or out of turn in getting us wrapped up in cyber conflict. And in fact, that's just not how cyber conflict has played out over the past several years. Hmm. It hasn't been used uh, as an offensive weapon in a way that would cause more kinetic military activity. It's right. Been used it hasn't for, led to escalation. Right. It's yeah. been used for things like surveillance, espionage, creating mm-hmm. a, a general fog, social media trolling, hacktivism. Uh, and I think for that reason, this author might say we don't need to be as worried about the Pentagon taking these actions without any oversight. What I might say is because this is not necessarily a purely defense department operation, this isn't something that's wholly a military operation, maybe we do want review from other agencies that have different expertise. Mm, Um, mm -hmm. So Hmm. whether that's uh, an entity like CISA, whether that's the State Department who understands how these things work diplomatically, um, or just people who have technical expertise, I mean, it might be useful as long as this is not – solely a military operation, if we're doing things for the purpose of espionage, for the purpose of intelligence gathering, maybe it's better that other entities besides the Department of Defense get involved. But that's Mm. just my view. Yeah. No, it's an interesting point. I mean, uh, as you say, uh, Ms. Schneider, who wrote this piece, points out that cyberspace isn't necessarily the Wild West anymore, that we're, we're seem to be settling into this mode where there are norms that are being developed um, and I think a lot of the fears that people had, you know, look at the, the, uh, the invasion of Ukraine. You know, we thought that perhaps the lights would be turned off or right. we wouldn't be able to pump our gas or, you know, all, all sorts of uh, critical infrastructure things might happen. And they haven't. It hasn't played out that way. doesn't mean it couldn't in the future. Right. But so far, this is where we seem to be. Um, so, yeah, interesting. I think it's a, it's a good point she makes here. Um, it is kind of wonky, I guess. <laughs> it's a sort of a subtle subtle thing. Uh, you know, back, the back and forth between administrations kinds of uh, – I, I, I guess that part fascinates me. The, you know, we, well, you did this and I did this and I'm, we're going to do this. And, and trust you know. me, this is not even close to the most extreme example of how these things work. Yeah. I mean my favorite example is the House of Representatives cafeteria. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I, and I, this is going to sound fascinating, but in 2007, the Democrats took control of Congress. Speaker Pelosi came in and had this whole Green the Capital initiative. Okay. So all of the dishware in the House cafeteria was biodegradable. Uh, mm. It was environmentally friendly. Then Republicans took over the House in 2011 and styrofoam came back. Oh, interesting. We got styrofoam day one. <laughs> right. 2019, Speaker Pelosi comes back into power, and the biodegradable cups uh, made their return to the House cafeterias. Right. So right. it can get a lot more petty than defense policies. I mean, even something like 
the Mexico City policy, which is whether we provide foreign aid to organizations that promote uh, abortions overseas, that's something that when every new administration comes in on the first day, they reverse the previous administration's policy if mm. they disagreed with it. Right. So Republican administrations come in and reinstitute the Mexico City policy. Democratic uh, administrations come in and they rescind it. Right. So this is just part of the the back and forth of politics. Yeah, there's no point in in gaining power if you're not going to put your ideological stamp on everything you do. Yeah, whether that's cyber espionage or the house cafeteria dishware. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of uh, when President Reagan came in and and tore the solar panels yep. off the solar White panels house. are gone. <laughs> right, right. So, so the house cafeteria soon you'll be uh, able to order yourself a, a baby seal burger. Right. Right. <laughs> if the Republicans win this fall, styrofoam's coming back. Right. Right. And uh, we'll just put those biodegradable cups uh, on the shelf uh, until the next time yes. the Democrats take power. Yes, petty differences at the mm-hmm. highest level, right? <laughs> All right, well, that is my story this week. Uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Again, that's from the Wall Street Journal, uh, written by Jacqueline G. Schneider. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. All right, Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Lauren Van Weyser. She is uh, from Akamai, and we were talking about some of the implications of the Biden administration's executive order on cybersecurity. Here's my conversation with Lauren Van Weyser. Yes, so the government um, has worked through what their strategy is, what to define it. I mean, frankly, um, everyone selling products wants to call their products zero trust now. Everybody, it's <laughs> it's the new popular moniker. Um, but uh, you know, basically, in the context of uh, the federal government, zero trust really is nothing different than it is um, you know accepted in the security community. I mean, basically, uh, you know limiting access through uh, better authentication. There are going to be a variety of tools uh, that the government uses to do that, including multi-factor authentication, which is also talked about in the cybersecurity executive order. But I guess I would say what's striking about this order in the zero trust area, and I'd love to talk about some of the other areas because it covers the waterfront, 
is that um, the Biden administration is really leading by example here. Uh, federal agencies aren't known for their alacrity and adhering to new IT standards. And, uh, you know, in some sense, the, the Biden administration has put the marker down and said, you know, you will, you will get here. And there's a set of timelines for that. And it, it's kicked off this multi-agency process, the complete alphabet soup of the federal government to, to look at this set of issues. And I think it's important just stepping back on the zero trust issue is that the government's leading by example, not only to the private sector, but also to other governments around the world. You know, the Biden um, administration is really at the forefront here in in moving to a zero trust environment, which is really where we need to be to get government systems more secure. And so um, it will encourage and incentivize other governments around the world to take the same approach. Um, so zero trust is just one area of the order, but it will, even the zero trust aspects are very significant in terms of the ultimate implications uh, for the industry. Yeah, it's it's really uh, striking how broad it is, and as you say, the the number of agencies that this is going to affect. Um, do you have insights onto how heavy a lift this is going to be for various agencies? I mean, is it are, are and to what degree are some agencies you know farther along the path than others? Well, as with anything um, in moving. An entity. I mean, the federal government's the largest purchaser of federal of IT services, right? So it's like yeah. moving a behemoth in in a new or a new direction. Um, there are definitely agencies that are faster forward on on that transition. Um, you know, as you'd expect, you know, some of the defense related agencies, and then there are agencies that may not be as 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 advanced, but the key is that the Biden administration, the president himself, because it's a presidential executive order, has signaled that this is going to be a priority for the administration and, you know, agencies need to get there and need to get there on a, you know, a, a tight timetable. The one thing that, you know, sort of goes part and parcel with all of this is a presidential executive order does not change the budgets of the individual agencies. And so for some of them, you know, it's a rejiggering, a juggling, changing, if you will, of their priorities on IT spend, but it doesn't give them a different bottom line. So there'll likely be uh, different appropriations requests um, as we move along in this, in this process. And what sort of timeline are we on here? executive order laid out very specific timetables. You know, some of the interim deliverables are not public, and so on some things can't easily verify, but I would expect most of the work associated with the executive order to be done in the next two to three years. Not surprisingly, that is, uh, uh, you know, the term of the, the president, but NIST OMB are, have already um, provided some interim outputs. OMB uh, released recently um, a zero trust strategy for federal agencies. NIST talked about uh, released, uh, you know, a risk-based approach for software development. Some interim standards associated with that. So 
all of the agencies are have kicked into gear and are you know, working together to to move this process along. Yeah. You mentioned that this goes beyond just zero trust. What are some of the elements here that have caught your eye? A host of things. Uh, one is working toward uniform incident response for the federal government, um, uh, standardizing um, how the playbook for how agencies respond to cyber incidents, you know, something that hasn't been done before. Also, uh, there was the creation of a National Cyber Safety Review Board. You think about the National Transportation Safety Board, but for cyber incidents. That was recently, the membership of that was recently announced in January. Their first item on their agenda that they're going to be looking at is Log4j. You know, there there has been nothing like the NTSB in the cybersecurity you know, area. So, um, you know, that's really really significant development. And that is uh, that board is comprised of both government and private sector entities. So it includes representation from DHS, uh, DOD, DOJ, but also you know private sector entities like Verizon and Google are 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 on it. So I think it's that'll be a really interesting area to watch and see the efficacy of that board and um, you know, see what they uh, generate in terms of their reports on some of these incidents. Uh, they also will have the ability to make policy recommendations. What is your, your sense of the response has been from the organizations that this is going to affect? Are they... Are they embracing this? Do they find that this is a realistic ask from the executive branch? I think it's important to look at the kind of two buckets of uh, folks impacted by this. There's obviously, and we've talked about it, the federal agencies, but the executive order applies directly to federal IT contractors. And so if you um, provide services to the federal government you know, you need to take note to some of the requirements that will be an outgrowth of the executive order. But I think one of the things that's uh, really important to note, and I'm sure the folks in your audience who are federal IT contractors are have focused uh, with just intense interest on this executive order and looking at their product suites that might map to it and things like that. But I think it's important to stand back and see, even if you are not a federal IT contractor, the likelihood is very significant that the outgrowth of the policymaking activities associated with this executive order will impact your business. They, it, there will definitely be spillover in the commercial space. So uh, if I had to say a PSA uh, here, a public uh, service announcement, it's if somehow you thought, geez, you didn't have to focus on this order because you're not a federal IT contractor, you know, think again. Uh, this will have extraordinary ripple effects in the commercial arena and don't bypass any opportunity to weigh in or monitor what's happening because ultimately it will impact your business. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. I mean, do you suppose we could find that, I mean, I'm thinking everything from, uh, you know, contracting requirements to insurance companies, you know, saying, 
uh, are you compliant with this this newly established federal standard? Absolutely. And, you know, to add to that, I would say expect that to be the case globally. So I, I worked in the White House for um, uh, the 2013 uh, presidential cybersecurity um, executive order, the one that set baseline requirements for cybersecurity across all industries and kicked off the process to develop the NIST framework, cybersecurity framework. That framework from the U.S. presidential executive order has been adopted wholesale in many countries around the world. So, uh, you know, even if your company operates outside the United States, odds are this executive order process and the outgrowth of it will ultimately affect your business if you're in this area. You know, cybersecurity, I think, uh, is one of the rare things that enjoys uh, bipartisan support. Is this the kind of thing that you see outlasting the current administration, that, uh, you know, someone, uh, a different administration, should they have different political goals, would tend to leave something like this in place? Yes. I mean, maybe change some things around the edges, but fundamentally, the... um, IT systems are moving to a zero trust architecture. So mm. while it, it that transition is happening, this executive order is a catalyst maybe to make it happen sooner for the federal agencies than otherwise, make it a higher priority. But that is inevitable because you know that's that's the way to safeguard federal IT systems for the future. So I would expect work along these lines to continue. Uh, you might have different, the, the variations on the theme would be things like maybe different membership and the cyber safety review board, things like that. But I wouldn't expect there to be wholesale changes uh, in direction. Ben, what do you think? First of all, we need to crown the Dave Bittner proposal in the cybersecurity executive order for the NTSB uh, cyber incident review. That's something that you've been pushing for for years. (laughs) The fact that she's mentioned it uh, just really jumped off the page to me. I think you need to get more credit here. Uh, Okay, yes, yes. I'm quietly uh, pulling the levers and turning the dials, right? (laughs) Yeah, you really control the strings on on cyber Mm -hmm. policy, so congratulations on that. Thank you very much. It's a a really interesting interview. I mean, I think... uh, Earlier in this episode, we talked about how the EU has taken the lead on things like data privacy, regulating content on social media. But the U.S. has really taken a lead on some of the things that are embedded in the cybersecurity executive order, governance issues, Mm. reporting requirements. Um, So it's kind of good to see that we're taking the lead in, in one realm here. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, our thanks to Lauren Van Weser for joining us. We do appreciate her taking the time. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud – 
Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And that is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. The Caveat Podcast is proudly produced in Maryland at the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Ben Yellen. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>